Luke chapter 14. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the first 14 verses of this chapter. And the context here for us for our, our text today is the same. It's Jesus has been invited by a Pharisee to come and to have this meal with him. And so they are there and fellowshipping and having some contact and conversation. And the first thing that we saw was there was the man that was there in their presence there with with dropsy, with the collection of water in his body. And the question again rose, here's another Sabbath, here's another controversy. Is it right that one should heal on the Sabbath day? And of course, the Pharisees, for whatever reason, chose on this occasion not to answer that question. Perhaps they had been embarrassed enough. Perhaps they had realized that we're not going to come out on top in dialogue with this one. Let's just listen and see what happens. And so Jesus, by his actions, indicates that in fact it was more than appropriate that he would heal someone on the Sabbath day. And then there was the seating of the guest. And Jesus noticed there how they were jockeying for their positions. And so he used that occasion to give them instruction on how they ought to come to a, a wedding feast. This was not a wedding feast, but using the parable of a wedding feast, that when they come, they should look for the, the low place for themselves, lest someone of more importance, of great greater significance than them, should come into the wedding feast, and they are asked by their host to move on down. And the only place left is, in fact, the lowest of places. And then not to exclude any, Jesus then turns to his host, And gives instruction to him. But when you invite. These are the ones that you ought to invite in verse 13. When you give a reception. Invite the poor. The crippled and the lame and the blind. In verse 14. You will be blessed. Because these are ones that they do not have the means to repay you. And you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So this dinner encounter. And this dinner conversation continues. And. There's been some debate at exactly what the gentleman who speaks up in verse 15, what he has in mind when he makes this exclamation here of blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Perhaps there's a bit of tension in the air. He realizes, let's just kind of change the subject here. Let's get on something that we can all agree on. And surely we can all agree on the one is blessed. Those are blessed who will indeed eat bread In the kingdom of God. So let's begin reading here in verse 15 through verse 24. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In verse 16. But Jesus, he said to him, A man was given a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner house, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, and blind, and lame. 
And the slave said, Master, what you've commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. I think it would be reasonable to assume that anyone who believes in heaven and believes in eternity has also with that some concept of, of its nature. What is it like? And don't we think about that? Oh, we believe in heaven. We believe in eternal destinies. And I think sometimes of what heaven might be like, what it could be like. You know, there's a lot of things that we don't know about eternity. You know, the popular and the secular views have of, you know, heaven is the place where there are a lot of clouds and harps and somehow or another there's this transformation that we experience from earth to heaven that you become an angelic being. And well, just let me assure you, incidentally, that people do not become angels. I think we know that, but just in case. People are people, angels are angels, and the two shall never meet. But certainly those are some concepts that are popular in the secular world of what heaven is like. More important than what is heaven like in its essence might be for us the question of who's going to be there? Who will be in heaven? And who won't be? You know, there are some complexities in that consideration, aren't they? You know, just in the, the raising and the training of our own children that we've gone through the period of trying to explain about heaven and, you know, getting beyond with our children that the point that heaven's not where the good people go and hell is where the bad people go. There's more to it than that, isn't there? And so we have to explain that, well, heaven is the place for people whose hearts have been transformed. Heaven is the place for those who truly love God because God has changed them and they love the Lord Jesus Christ and they want to be with him forever. But sometimes you go back to that. Well, it's for the good people and the bad people go to go to hell. Will there be any surprises in heaven? Any surprises in the sense of who is there and who is not? Well, certainly the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they had heaven in their minds and God's eternal kingdom. They would speak of the kingdom of God. They had it figured out. And it would not have been unusual, even as we see in the, the language of this person, this gentleman who spoke up in verse 15, it would not be unusual to, to take the symbolic language of, of a great banquet or a feast and speaking of heaven. And that's exactly the symbolism he uses there. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. There's something about a, a meal and, and fellowship there that's implied there. And it's not unusual, not only in, in this wording here, it's very common throughout the Old Testament. It's not unusual to find that imagery in the Old Testament scriptures. For example, in Psalm 23.5, there the psalmist David speaks of the Lord preparing a place before him in the presence of his enemies. 
Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, there it speaks of this lavish banquet that is prepared by God in this future kingdom of God. So it's not unusual, and it's certainly not erroneous. And in fact, it's an imagery here that Jesus himself uses in this parable. This imagery of this banquet, or this great feast, in referencing the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom, heaven. But I want us to make sure we don't get in our minds that when we speak of the kingdom of God, that we're speaking strictly of a future event. That was part of the problem of the Pharisees. They had so relegated this to the future that when it came to their present life, they missed it. That Jesus came as the, the manifest, incarnate presence of the kingdom of God. And they missed it. So there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is now. That it was, as we've discussed here, that the kingdom of God was inaugurated when Jesus first came. That the kingdom of God is now. And there is a sense in which when Christ returns, it will be the culmination, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. So we need to be careful that we don't think strictly in the sense of the kingdom of God as a, as a future thing. Because it's not that. It's not that in the scriptures. And certainly the Pharisees and their thinking as they thought about the kingdom of God, as they thought about heaven, they would have envisioned themselves as having places of honor. I mean, after all, they were the guardians of the gate, so to speak. They were the ones who, who proclaimed truth and who attempted, according to their thinking, to model what it meant to live in obedience to the law of God. And we know, in fact, they failed to do so. So Jesus comes once again and challenges conventional thinking with this parable. And he particularly clarifies the question regarding who will be there, who is in God's kingdom, either now or in eternity, and who is not. And it's not necessarily who or what one might expect. I think that's very clear. And what he tells here in this parable to the Pharisees, to the scribes that are there. So because, again, this is the words of Jesus challenging their thinking and perhaps ours as well. Perhaps it would be a good thing that when we think about eternity, we think about the kingdom of God, we think about the eternal kingdom of God and even heaven itself. That we, to some degree, expect the unexpected. Be ready for the unexpected. And what surprises might await men, and I think, and I'm speaking here specifically of those who would not be scripturally informed, I would hope that we would be free from many of those surprises. But I think we're, we're correct in assuming, because of what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, that uh, eye is not seen, nor has ear heard. Nor is it even entered to the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love Him. There's going to be, in, in some sense, an element of surprise and awe and wonder for all of us. But what about for those who would not be scripturally informed, who have not understood what the Scripture reveals about the kingdom of God, reveals about heaven? What are some of the surprises that might await them? And perhaps might await some of us here. Well, first of all, there will be 
the absence of the religious. The absence of those who are religious. Now, you notice here in the first part of Jesus' parable, it says there in verse 16, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. So there are many that are invited to this big dinner and there was apparently a twofold invitation. There was the initial sending out of this invitation. A big dinner will be given. You are invited to come. And apparently, it would be correct in assuming that those who received this invitation said, yes, we'll come. For whatever reason. The response was, yes, we will come. But when the time of the dinner came, and the invitation to was, the invitation then was, come now. We see a different response. They all begin, as it says here in verse 18, they all alike began to to make excuses, to offer lame and shallow reasons why they cannot come, why they should be considered excused by the host. And we're not going to go into a lot of detail on these things, but, you know, the ones that are given there. One says, I've bought a piece of land and I need to go out and to look at it. And, of course, many have have discussed about the lameness. And and it was apparent to those who heard this of what's being offered here. If you've bought a piece of land, surely you have already gone out and looked at it before you bought it. That's assumed. But there's not any reason you can't go and look at it at a later time or another time. And then... The second, well, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. And again, they would have tried them out before, but even if they hadn't or if they wanted to try them out further, there will always be ample opportunity to do that on another occasion. And the the third one, I have married a wife and for that reason, I cannot come. Now, I've never known of a wife that didn't want to go to a dinner banquet. You know, there's the occasion and perhaps a best case scenario is... Well, since the first invitation was extended, I have married, and you're not expecting my wife, and so we cannot come. But again, that's that's put it in its very best light. What seems to be deliberately conveyed here in these excuses that Jesus presents is they were all very lame, all very shallow. All those simply made up, give me some reason that I don't have to go and... I don't want to go. I'm not going to. So who are these first invited? Who are these that are invited that receive? Who is Jesus speaking about in this parable? Well, in the parable, it would be those who are expected to accept and to attend. In other words, this host is having this party, and he invited many. In other words, he invited specific people. Those whom he expected would accept the invitation and would, in fact, attend. He went, it went out to many people. So there was, in that sense, those who would have been expected to, to come. They had some type of a connection with his host. And I think it's very clear to us that this is actually a picture of, of God's invitation of God's invitation to the people of Israel, exemplified in Jesus' day by the Pharisees and the lawyers. That truly the people of Israel, those who have been first invited to come into the kingdom of God, to come and partake of this scrumptious banquet, this feast that has been prepared before them. 
It seems that it's an example of Luke chapter 13. If you want to look back there with me, we considered this back a few weeks ago of Luke chapter 13, verse 30. Some who are last, some who are right now last, who will be then at this later time first, and some who are right now first, who will at this later time be last. So it seems that this is some of those who were first in the sense that they had received the words of God. They had the covenants of God, the promises of God given to them. Those were those in Jesus' day who were esteemed to be first. And Jesus said, some of those who are first now, many of you Pharisees, lawyers, and Jews, you will be last. And we understood in the context there, as we considered, it's not saying you're coming in last in line. The point is, you're not coming in at all. You're cast aside. As verse 28 tells us of 13, you yourselves being thrown out, that you are not a part of the kingdom of God. So it seems that what we have here in this parable is an example of what's spoken there of in Luke 13:30. These are some who are the first, but they are about to become, in fact, the last. Those who have no place within the kingdom of God. So it serves here as another warning from Jesus to the Pharisees, to the scribes, or the lawyers, and the danger of missing God's kingdom. Those who give lip service of yes to God. You ask a Pharisee, you ask the lawyers, do you desire to serve God? Do you desire to walk in obedience to God? Yes, 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 yes. But continue to reject God as is evidenced by the rejection of God Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So there's no need to look at these excuses and try to allegorize them. Now, certainly a temptation has always been and throughout church history to, to so allegorize parables that they are become almost, uh, almost comical. But at the same time to recognize that there are certain allegorical aspects. There are certain images that we are to get. We are to understand that this host, this man that's given this feast is God. And we are to understand that there are those who are first invited and those reject or those who are of the nation of Israel. That's, that's rightfully understood there. But we don't go and allegorize every little part of a parable and try to make it mean something. There are those who have been involved in such fanciful interpretations. And if you want to read that, it's available. But I'm not going there. I don't think that it's of really true value. So rather than trying to allegorize these excuses that are presented. I just think we need to summarize them this way to understand that they typify hearts that despise the offer of the invitation they've received. In other words, they have no regard for it. They lightly esteem what's been offered to them to come and to partake of this feast that's been prepared with them in mind. They hear it and it means nothing to them. And so when the time to come arrives... They throw up their lame excuses. The invitation is of no value to them, so any excuse will do. So we find that the absence of the religious 
in the kingdom of God is not for lack of invitation. That the the message of the gospel is a universal message that is a message to be proclaimed to all men, to all people. And there was an extension of of the invitation certainly to those in historically in the Old Testament revealed to us as the people of God there was this continued invitation to them to come to come and yet we find that in reality the response was there was no interest in such things there was no desire there was no heart and so they continued to reject it and what a revelation here the hearts of men that we simply see here in this parable that Jesus gives what Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That is the inability of the natural man to, aspra- to appraise spiritual things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 and following. A natural man, a man who is unconverted, a man who is still in his, in his spiritual lostness. Does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. But a natural man has no appreciation, has no capacity to grasp what is extended to him by God himself in the offer of the gospel. And these having all the promises of God offered to them, had no heart for it, had no understanding of this thing, no appreciation for it. And it certainly reveals this about the heart of men. Man prefers to live in his own world of religious pretense. He prefers to live in that world rather than to repent. Rather than to acknowledge That he is a man in desperate need. A man would rather do anything than die. And that's what Bonhoeffer's words, right? Christ calls a man to follow him. He calls him. He bids him come and die. A man would delight in living in a world of religious pretense if it means he does not have to repent, if he does not have to renounce his own sin, if he does not have to renounce, in fact, everything about him. And so we must not make the mistake either in our day of confusing religious, even in the context of Christian activity, for genuine conversion. Don't make that mistake. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the things that you do are sufficient to assure you of a place in heaven. That's not conversion. Heaven is for those who have experienced a transformation of heart and life, not something that they have done to or for themselves, but it is something that has been enacted upon them from the outside that God has done to them. That is conversion. So the question is not, what have you done? The question is, what has God done? Has God done something for you? What is your hope of heaven? Now, some of you are familiar with the uh, D. James Kennedy evangelism explosion training and the questions that they offer. And one of those questions is, 
If you were to die right now and to stand before God and He were to, and he were to say to you, Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And I've asked that question to people. I've asked that question to church people. 90% of the time, you get a works-based answer. In other words, they start saying, Well, I've do this, or I've done this. Few and far between, but somewhat refreshing is those who will say, My only hope is the grace of God. My only hope is that God has done a work of grace within me that I have been regenerated by Him, by His work. Not anything I've done. You know, what comes to your mind when you think about, should I go to heaven? Do you start thinking about, well, I go to church. Do you start thinking about, I take my commitment in the home seriously. I take my role as a father. I take my role as a mother and as parents seriously. Is that enough? Or is it, I read my Bible regularly. I pray regularly. Pharisees prayed. Lots of people in false religions pray Lots of people read the Bible. Critics who disagree with the Bible read it. What's your hope? What's your hope of heaven? See, there'll be none in heaven who are just merely religious. It's not for religious people. So we need to make sure that we understand that the only entrance into the kingdom of God is to respond to His invitation and His invitation to come and dine, which is the title of the message today. His invitation to come and dine is also when you come to dine, you renounce all sin. You renounce all self-righteousness. You renounce anything of yourself. You have no fitness of your own. And then the biblical word is very simply this. Repent. Repent. His invitation to submit to Jesus Christ rule in your life. The invitation to access the righteousness of Christ. That His righteousness be laid upon your account. His righteousness imputed to us. And to receive His invitation, all the benefits of Christ's redemptive work. That's the invitation. But it comes at a high price. You repent. And you believe in Him. You put your confidence and your faith and your trust in Him. And in nothing else. The kingdom of God is not for the religious. It's rather it's for the repentant and those who are confident of their own guilt. If you've got any level of confidence, dear, dear people today, if you've got any confidence today, let it be this. I'm confident of my sin. I'm confident of my absolute unfitness for the kingdom of God. I don't belong there. In and of myself. I don't belong there. Be confident of that. And those who grasp the incomparable value of His invitation to come. And you hear the words, Come, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, I come, I need you, I want you. And you've given this invitation, I come. The absence of the religious is going to be a surprise for a lot of people. Second surprise for some is going to be the attendance of the responsive. 
verses 21 through 23, Jesus here continues his parable. What's happened? Those who have those who have responded to this invitation to come, they've sent out their lame excuses. And so the slave comes back in verse 21. He comes back and reports to his master what has taken place. So the head of this household, this host who has given this party, becomes angry. And he says to his slave, I want you to go out into the streets and the lane to the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, should. Verse 13. There's another reason Jesus says to those Pharisees, when you host a party and you invite people, these ones you should invite, because it's being like God. It's revealing the character of God. The poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, they're representative of the social outcast of Jesus' day. These weren't the people you typically invited. These were not the people that received the first invitation. But these are those, according to verse 13 is and 14 of the previous text, those who are without means to repay. Those who are, in the context of salvation, those who are spiritually bankrupt, those who are spiritually empty, those who have absolutely nothing to offer. That's who the invitation goes out to. But it goes beyond that. It goes, he says, they, the, the slave, he comes back and he says, Master, what you said in verse 22, what you have commanded me to do, I've gone out and I've called these people, and there's still room. In verse 23, and this master gives the slave further instruction. He says, you go out into the highways and along the hedges. In other words, you go outside the, the bounds of the city. You go out to the highways and the hedges and you compel them. The word compel there, force them. Come in so that my house may be filled. And the highways along the hedges, those that are esteemed outside the reach of the grace of the gospel. You know, the people that you think never in a hundred years will they become a Christian. Don't you know people like that? I do. I speak as a fool. But people in my little pea brain, I've completely figured out there's no way under the sun that person gets saved. (laughs) And then I had to remember, I got saved. The Lord saved me. So there's hope. But those who are beyond any measure of hope in, in the Pharisees thinking, these people are way out. No hope. And in their context, probably the Gentiles. They don't, they're not part of the covenant. They're not part of the covenant community. They're outside grace. They're condemned and rightfully so. And this invitation goes forth. And the word there, compel, it is, it is. The word there means force, but it's not going out there and grabbing them by the neck and saying, come on, brother, get saved. It's not that. But it's that compelling of love. It's those who are outside outside of, of understanding and hearing of grace. And so those who need to be convinced that such an invitation offered to them is genuine. So you go to them and you say, come in. And they hear it and their response is, you've got to be nuts. 
There is no way that someone like that is going to invite someone like me to come to his meal, to his feast. And so you compel them, you persuade them of the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. Those people in whose, in whose hearts God has worked and they, and they see it. They still marvel. There's no way. No, no way God would save me. No way that God would have me. Look where I've been. Look what I've done. I'm too far gone. I've committed the unpardonable sin. Don't know what it is, but I'm sure I've done it. And so, Jesus, here in this parable, uses that word. It's that force, that compulsion of love. You sell them. You sell them on this truth. That they're welcome. That this isn't a cruel joke. This is reality that you're welcome to come and to sit at this table of this host at this great meal. Far beyond anything you've ever imagined, anything you'd ever hoped for, it's yours if you just come. And they do. And certainly, the spiritual parallel, those who hear the gospel invitation, those who are simply willing to own and to repent of sin. Those who still marvel at such a provision, to marvel at the reality that there is pardon not just for sin, but there is pardon for my sin. I know what I've done. You don't. But there's pardon for my sin. I can understand pardon for somebody else's sin. But for my sin. To marvel that there is this being adopted into the family of God, that we should be called the children of God. You know, that truth that John just never got over, did he? He says there, Behold, what love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. He just didn't get over it. The only requirement, the only requirement is to renounce your sin, which... They're glad to do. To embrace Jesus Christ. And they're, great. they're glad to do it. I need a Savior. I need someone to plead my case. I need someone to take my sin. I need someone to give me absolute and true and pure righteousness and to put on my account so that I might be received by God. I need someone and I see Jesus as that one and they embrace Him. He's all in all to them. That's the response. Those, that's who's in heaven. They're responsive. They hear the invitation. They might marvel. They might be amazed. They might question, could it be possible? But eventually, they come running. Yes, it's true. It's true. And we understand they come running as God works in their hearts to do so. Let me ask you. Have you marveled at God's grace that He would save you? Or have you considered it, well, that's kind of what God does. Why wouldn't He save me? Have you marveled at it? God's grace to you. Not your wife, not your husband, not your friends, not your pastor, by any stretch. God's grace to you.
Do you marvel at that? Or do you still have some sense of fitness for that? Have you ever come to God abandoning every every speck, every strip of anything that you would deem to be righteous or good, stripped of it? I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I deserve the just condemnation, the eternal damnation of God Himself upon my soul for my sins committed against Him. I've got one hope, and that is, God, be merciful to me. Be merciful. Have you responded? Have you seen yourself as a spiritual outcast? Have you seen yourself and understood yourself to be a foreigner to grace? We respond to a gracious invitation. The kindness of this master would not be thwarted, would it? He extends the invitation to the first called and they reject it. But he extends it further. Someone is going to come. And and what he says there in verse 23, the very last part of it. So my house may be filled. (laughs) I'm going to show forth my kindness. I'm going to show forth my compassion and my grace to the greatest extent that I can. Till my house be filled. Such is the grace of God. He extends his grace to us. We were not seeking after Him. We were not seeking to be reconciled to God. Any one of us content to walk into our life and our pathway of sin into our eternal destiny of hell apart from Him. But God in His grace, God in His mercy, He came and He called. And He called effectually on your behalf if you believe. He called in such a way, working in your heart by the Spirit of God, that you responded. The grace of God. Surprise in heaven that those who attend are simply those who have responded by repentance and faith. That Jesus Christ has become very dear to them. And third, we see potential surprise, and that is the authority of the rejected, capital R, the rejected one. We look at verse 24. It says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. And a quick read here, you might read this and think this is the host continuing to speak to his servant or his slave that he has sent out. And he's just giving him further explanation. You know, verse 23, and my, that my house may be filled, for I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste of my den. That's what it could look like at first glance. The other possibility, and I think the probability, is that this is not the words of the host to his slave. Verse 24, these are the words of Jesus 
to his hearers. And I, and I think that for two reasons. I don't stand alone here, so don't think I'm going on some type of tangent. I'm not. I don't go on tangents. There's a lot of people out there. Two reasons that I think it's the latter. Why I think it's Jesus speaking to the hearers, to his hearers. One is that little phrase there in verse 24, I tell you. That phrase appears 20 additional times in Luke's gospel. Each time's at the lips of Jesus. And every other time, clearly, where Jesus is asserting his authority and affirming a truth. Get your concordance. I pulled it up on my computer. I just typed in concordance, three words. Those are the words there. I tell you. And boom, there it came up. And every time, clearly the words of Jesus speaking authoritatively, affirming his authority, but also affirming truth. The second reason that I think it's the words of Jesus to his hearers and not part of the parable is that we don't pick it up in English, but in verse 24, the third word, I tell you, the word you there is plural. Now, you don't have the word you anywhere in this parable when the master is speaking to the slave. However, you do have verb forms that in the Greek reveal to you whether you're speaking to singular you or plural you. And in each case, the words of this master or of this host to his slave, in each case, he speaks in the singular form. Those are picked up in the in the verb forms, particularly where he gives, he says, go out into the streets, go out. Both of those, second person, singular. It's clear in the Greek. It's not clear. In the English, it's you or you. Or if you're from the South, it's you and y'all. Okay? This is you all. Y'all. I tell y'all. This is Jesus. So what we have here in verse 23, the parable ends. Jesus has completed the parable and He speaks in verse 24, I'm telling you, Pharisees and scribes and this individual who's spoken up in verse 15, I'm telling you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So what do we see here? He takes this imagery of a dinner from the parable and he makes a real life application about a real dinner. So he says, therefore, I tell you, there he is once again speaking with this divine authority. This is not to be questioned. I tell you this as absolute divine truth. As God himself speaking to you, this is true. None shall taste of my dinner. In other words, Jesus is saying, He is the host. Jesus is saying, He is God. So the point to his hearers is, the the dinner, the feast, or the meal, 
that they anticipate in the eternal kingdom of God is his, it is Jesus' dinner. He is the host. So, the blessing of eating bread in the kingdom of God, which he references there in verse 15, where this man speaks, Blessed everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. That blessing is theirs right now. Right now. For them. It's right there. In front of them. If they would only hear it. If they would only respond to His invitation. And so their expectation of this eternal feast and meal. Surprise, surprise. The one whom they've rejected is the host. And He says... With finality, with all authority, I tell you, none of those men, make the application, none of those men like you. I think they were supposed to make that application. Who are invited shall taste of my dinner. Very clear word, is it not? The most significant surprise for them. It's more significant about the religious not being there and the ones who responded are. The most significant surprise for these folks is that the one that they rejected, he's sitting at the head of the table. We referenced that verse in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 last Sunday, but he speaks there of every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. stone that the builders rejected and he's there it's his feast this thing that they are supposedly looking forward to anticipating and here proclaiming blessing upon those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God essence what he's saying is you're a foreigner to this you've no part in this you've no part in my meal, my feast. So it all comes down to this. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Who do you believe Jesus to be? And what have you done with him? What have you have you responded? Do you believe Jesus to be who the scriptures reveal him to be? As God. As the Redeemer, as the one who has come to lay down his life and take upon himself the sins of his people. Do you believe him as such? If that be the case, have you responded? What have you done with him? If he be God, and if he's done these things, and as he has also revealed to us, as we've considered on many occasions here, of what is yet to come. There comes that occasion where He will return. What have you done with Him? In light of that, in light of the fact that 
the eternal kingdom of God. Heaven itself is where Jesus serves as host. In other words, you're going to see Him. And you're going to stand before Him as your God and as your judge. That's the authority of the one who was rejected. Have you bowed to this one? Is Jesus your Lord and your Savior because you've acknowledged Him as such, bowed before Him in brokenness? Is He most precious to you? Is Jesus Christ the satisfaction of your soul? Got nothing else. You got Him. You're happy. You're satisfied. And do you long to be with Him? You look forward to heaven? Oh, I'm with Jesus every day. Good for you. I'm looking for heaven. (laughs) Where it will be a much better fellowship than it is right now. No longer the breach of sin. No longer the shame of sin. We shall see Him as He is. We shall be known. We shall know Him as we are known. I look forward to that. Any surprises in heaven? Any surprises for you in God's eternal kingdom? Ultimately, it's about this. It's about the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ, is it? And your place within the kingdom of God, your place for all of eternity, has to do with the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ in your heart, personally. You reject Him? Reject the rule. Reject the reign of Christ. Heaven is not for you. And to be honest with you, you don't want to be there. You don't want to be in hell either. Let me just set that straight. But you don't want to be in heaven. And that's where most people are. They don't want hell. They don't want heaven. Just make it nice and comfortable here in the good old USA. But receive Him. Receive Him. And all that means, receiving Him as Lord and Savior, coming to Him in brokenness, owning Him as your Lord and Savior. And He waits to serve as host as his, at His dinner, eternal dinner. That's the picture He gives to us of heaven. It's a divine invitation. Come and dine. Let there be no surprises there for any here. Let there be none here who expect to be there and are not. Let there be none here that we expect and hope to be there. And they're not. If there's been a response in your heart to this gracious invitation, come, come and dine. Come and dine. It's a royal invitation. Listen, if President George Bush says, sends a letter to me or calls me and says, Randy McReynolds, you come to the White House and eat with me. I'm going to do everything within my power to get there. Because he's the president. How much more so with an invitation from the God of heaven? Come and dine. It carries more than the weight of come if you can, doesn't it? It comes with the weight of God himself. Come and dine. It's the weight of even a command. What a gracious invitation. Come and dine. Or perish. 
Is that a hard choice? Come and dine with God. Come to Him. Come into His family. Or perish. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a God of grace and mercy. I'm sure that we can stand before You now and acknowledge that there is There's no good thing within us. And yet how quickly, how amazingly we are so given over to the sins of pride. And Father, I pray that you would take these truths that we've considered here today. And I'm very mindful that we have a number of of young children and youth in our midst here. And I pray that the implications of this message will fall upon their hearts as is appropriate for those who have not yet come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Or if they would come. And yet if there be any of the adults, those here who, as I look around, that would profess faith in Christ, and yet the truth is there's never been a work of grace in their heart. And their hope has been in religious activity, Morality, decency. And I pray today that they would find anew and afresh the sufficiency of the merits of Christ alone. Lord, that we might be a people prepared for eternity and having been prepared for eternity, ready to live as you would have us to live this day. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.